Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning from verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If one of the unbelievers invite you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone say to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then out of consideration for the man who informed you and for his conscience sake, I mean his conscience, not yours, do not eat it. For why should my liberty be determined by another man's scruples? If I partake with, thans- with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please all men in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Um, The reason for this series is because we believe the Christian gospel, the Christian truth, is a gloriously good news truth. It is wonderful to know, it is wonderful to believe. Everybody in the world needs it, whether they know it or not. And if you care about people, you'll want to find ways to help them know this truth. I'm deeply convinced that spontaneous creativity in sharing the gospel is not bred by ignorance. Spontaneous creativity in sharing the gospel, (coughs) grows out of a mind that is deeply rooted in the basics of biblical truth and the gospel. Uh, Here's the the example I thought of. If you uh, are a a, uh, portrait uh, painter, a creative artist, probably you would be most creative most effective, most uh, gifted if you had spent long hours mastering the human nose. This odd shape on the front of our face. And this, this cauliflower on the side of our head called an ear. These are hard things to draw. Nobody is a creative portrait artist who says, Oh, I'll just start with the whole face. I'll just... You work long hours to nail down the nose, the chin, the ear. Then, when that's sort of second nature, you can take hundreds and thousands of different kinds of faces that are unique, and you can work on them with the most creativity. And I think that's the way it is with the gospel. If you say, look, I don't want to be bound by any any form or canned truths, that's okay. I understand the sentiment. 
But it's like painting. If you want to be useful and creative in dealing in a spontaneous way with an unbeliever, you better spend a lot of time thinking about the basics. And so, whether you use this pamphlet or not, I think being here for the next four weeks will help you get the nose and the ear and the chin of the gospel down. So that when it comes time to paint the gospel in a creative and fresh way, in a given situation with a unique human being, you will be free to do it as the Lord leads. So I'm deeply convinced that whether you are going to use this or not, what we're doing here is valuable. Now let's open it all the way to the inside. There are six truths here. And... uh, We looked at the first one last week. They're in dark print and then a verse and then an explanatory paragraph under each one. And the first truth was God created us for his glory. And I said last time, I keep saying last week, you just interpret that two weeks ago, okay? Um, Last time, um, I said we got to start here. Because you need to get the reality of God out on the table early on in our culture. You need to know something about his power, his creator. You need to know something about his his, uh, greatness. He's powerful and glorious. You need to know something about his purposes. He aims to be glorified in his creatures. And that needs to be put out there on the table early on. Now, I gave three reasons why that was so last week. I want to add a fourth and make that a bridge into truth number two here at the bottom of the first panel inside. Here are the four reasons why we have designed this pamphlet with truth number one at the beginning. Number one, for reason number one, God is the central reality in the universe. The Bible says all things are from him, through him, and to him, to him be glory forever. Romans 11.36. In Hebrews 2.10 it says, By him and for him all things were made. He's the origin, the means, the goal of all things. He is the encompassing reality, the central reality, the supreme value in the universe and in all of reality. He must be put there, square at the center, not man. We are by nature self-centered creatures who want ourself at the center of God's solar system where God alone belongs. If you begin at that point, the gospel will be distorted. Sin will not be understood. The goal of God will not be communicated. Things go awry if you don't get the priority of God on the table at the beginning of the gospel. Here's my second reason. When we get to truth number three next week, it says, and you all know this verse if you're acquainted with the gospel at all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you say that to somebody and you've not said one word to them about the glory of God, what sense are they going to make of that? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. What in the world does that mean? Fall short of glory. And why is that a problem? 
It is not obvious what that means. And therefore, we need to get on the table early on what glory you're talking about. Why is glory important? Whose glory? What is God's purpose for His glory? Because when you get to Romans 3.23, you can't understand the nature of sin as an offense against God's glory if you haven't made the glory of God central in the universe. What inevitably happens to sin in a man-centered approach to the gospel is that it receives a psychological interpretation, not a theological one. Sin becomes my misery, not God's offense. That's what happens to sin if you don't get God on the table early on with His glory as the supreme goal of the universe. Sin becomes a therapy problem, not a legal problem. And therefore, the gospel will make no sense when Jesus comes along to justify sinners and vindicate the holiness of God. The cross vanishes out of the gospel in its true meaning unless God is at the center from the beginning. So there's the second reason why we put it there. The third reason is that it is right for God to be God-centered and not man-centered. Now, I didn't say this last time. I say this in response to questions that have come to me. It is right, I would say righteous, for God to be God-centered, even though it's wrong for us to be man-centered. It's very crucial to say this. The ultimate value in the universe is God and not Man and therefore God should be honest and tell us that and for our own sake commend His glory to us as our highest value. Now, here's the problem. Some people ask, well now how is it right for God to seek His glory all the time as wrong for me to seek my glory all the time? Sounds inconsistent. I thought I was supposed to imitate God said so at the end of the text, or imitate God through Paul. Well, now, what's wrong here? This is a real easy problem to solve, if you just think a minute. God's righteousness and my righteousness are defined exactly the same. Here's the meaning of God's righteousness at its root. God's righteousness is that He always, without fail, Place his highest devotion on the highest value in the universe. If he didn't, he'd be an idolater. He'd be unrighteous if he put his highest devotion on something that is not the highest value. That's exactly the meaning of my righteousness. I would be unrighteous if I didn't put my highest devotion on that which is of supreme value in the universe. So, the implication of that definition of righteousness is real simple. God must worship God in order to be righteous. God must not be an idolater. God must love God. God must esteem God above all things. Or he is wicked, just like we are wicked if we esteem anything above God. 
So it's a confusion to say that if God seeks His glory and magnifies His worth because He is the most worthy being in the universe, therefore, I ought to be able to magnify myself when I'm a little ant and a sinner to boot compared to God. And so we must make clear at the outset that God's being God makes it right for him to seek his glory. And my being a creature indebted to God's glory makes it wrong for me to idolize my glory and right to give it away to God. I don't think that's hard at all to understand. And the reason people don't like it is because they want to be God. We're going to talk about this next week. That's the first thing that happened in this world with Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be the sun in the solar system of God's character. And they don't like the idea. And many of you cringe under the thought that God is radically self-centered. That is, He is at the center of His values He will not allow himself to be replaced with anything lesser value. And the reason we don't rejoice in that, love that, bow before that, is because we want to be there. We don't like him taking our place at the center. We'll hear more about that next week. The evidence for that reality among us is that it is very rare these days to hear a God-centered vision of God and very, very common to hear an unbiblical man-centered vision of God. That's the evidence that humans don't like the message of the Bible that God is for His glory above all things. Now, the fourth reason for why we begin here is because... Very practically, and as common sense says, you can make more out of something if you know why it was made. You get better use out of something if you know why it was made. So, uh, you will get better use out of a lawnmower if you know that it's made to cut grass rather than be used as a window fan. If you put it up in the window, it'd be loud and make you miserable all day. Your kid gets his hand cut off. I mean, your life will be miserable. And all that flows from knowing why something is made. It's made to cut grass, sit on the ground. If you don't know why you are made, you'll botch it. You will botch your life. You'll ruin it. Get yourself cut in pieces. And so you you begin by saying, here's why you're made, world. Here's your destiny. Here's what God has in mind for you. And that leads us now to truth number two. And, And if you read it, it looks like it says almost the same thing as truth number one. But I want you to see the crucial difference. Truth number one begins with God and describes his design. Truth number two shifts to man and describes our duty. So let's read The dark print, the verse, and the paragraph. I'll read it to you. Every human should, therefore, live for God's glory, since that's why he made us. The verse, the last, or one near the end of what Wilford read. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, everything in your life, for the glory of God. 
And then a little explanatory paragraph that we'll spend the rest of our time unfolding. If God made us for His glory, it's clear that we should live for His glory. Our duty comes from His design. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means that we love Him, trust Him, are thankful to Him, and obey Him. We're going to talk about those four things and glorifying God. But before we do that, I want to encourage you here about a strategy in the use of of this pamphlet or anything else you use in sharing the gospel. Suppose you've gotten this far and the person you're sharing with or the group, they just say, wait a minute, I don't buy that at all. Number one, I don't think there is a God. Number two, the, 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 uh, the fact of evolution has just made all that talk about design and purposiveness for man simply meaningless. And so, look, we're, we're just not getting anywhere, and there's no point in going on here. Now, what do you do at that point? Now, please don't do this. Don't say either in your head or out loud, There's no point in going on. It's just, I mean, if they don't agree with premise number one, no point in going on premise number two. And so, close up shop, I'll go and pray for them, but that's it. I can't do anything else. That's not true. And you shouldn't do that. Here's the way you should respond, I think. You should say, okay, I understand that you're not with me, but can I, let's do this. We want to talk about what each other think is true and what what each other thinks is the best philosophy of life and the best way to live your life here and whether there's an eternity. Can I just put the whole thing on the table? Give me another five or ten minutes and get the whole thing out on the table uh, and, and let you consider it as a whole. And then if you reject it, all right, we'll, we'll call it a draw for now. Now, here's why I think you should say that. A couple of reasons. Number one, very few people embrace an idea or embrace a philosophy, or embrace a religion, or embrace a person because of careful, logical analysis of premises moving from the most basic to the most uh, advanced. That's not the way most people work, is it? Premise number one, let's test it. Okay, good. Premise number two, let's test it. Okay. That's not the way most people came to, to where they are in life. Most people embrace an idea, a philosophy, a religion, a, a, a person, because as they begin to get acquainted with it, lights begin to go on. Flashes of insight come. Things begin to fall into place. Puzzlements in their own personality and in the world start to make sense. And just there's this, there's this overarching sifting and shaking of experience and thought and emotion and reality that brings you to a point of a settled conviction, this is real. That's the way most people are. That's not bad. Most people don't move neatly and logically from premise to premise. They see things as a whole and some part of it, it hits home or the whole looks beautiful. Or something like that. Here's the second reason why I think you should respond that way. Namely, suppose when you're done sharing the gospel, whatever form you you use, and the person says, that's nice. I I admire you Christians. I'm glad you have a morality. I think you're good for our country. But I don't don't buy it, and I don't think in a pluralistic society you should push yourself on me. So thanks anyway. Now, the reason you have not 
failed at that point is because you have no idea what the Holy Spirit's going to do with that gospel. Five years down the line, this person in a deep night of the soul, wrestling with some tragedy in their life or some guilt in their body or something, the Holy Spirit can awaken that memory to this wonderful news. It may be that another person has said something. I mean, when I listen to the testimonies on Wednesday night, it is so encouraging because virtually all the testimonies say there's been a lot of input. Here's a person who said something. Here's a person who did something. Here's a mom. Here's a Sunday school teacher. He was an university worker, campus crusade. And then, boom, the Holy Spirit clinches it at some point. None of that was wasted. We won't begin to know till glory how much value every word we've spoken has been. And so I just want to encourage you. I want us to have an atmosphere at Bethlehem so that when you come back here, having shared the gospel one, two, three, four, five, six times during the week, and nobody believed or seemed to care that we come together not defeated. Nobody has failed if they have spoken truth for Jesus Christ. The truth will be honored. The sharing of it is victory. And the Holy Spirit will do with it what He sovereignly pleases. And you need not be downcast. If you have taken something like this, ask a friend at work, can I share my philosophy of life with you over lunch? And taken 15 minutes and laid it out and had them say, you're off the wall. That is not a failure. And there's so many things we can learn to make ourselves more effective in this as well. Now, the question on truth number two that we need to be most concerned about here is uh, what it means to glorify God. And I want us to talk about that for the remaining minutes. You could take these verses, for example, and you could say, well, here are four ways to glorify God, to love Him, trust Him, thank Him, and obey Him. And you could open those verses and show that those are biblical duties that God calls for, and you could show how they're related to bringing Him glory. Now, whether you do that or not depends a lot on the common ground you have and whether the person has any respect for the Bible or not or so on. I'm going to show an alternative to you this morning, namely just using everyday experience experiences and illustrations to commend the obvious sense of what's here to people. Now, here's, here's what I'm getting at. The word duty is another word for law. You know, historically, the Puritans say in sharing the gospel, you need to present the law, the beginning, so people will be convicted of their sins and then share the gospel. A little problem with that distinction, but I do believe the law is important. I'm calling it duty here. Love God with all your heart, trust Him, be thankful to Him, and obey Him. That's law. Now, duty and law are words that sound negative. They sound burdensome, they sound oppressive, they sound limiting and constricting. And so at this point, you're up against... Saying to somebody, you ought to do something, or you should do something, and those words in our culture are fighting words. We are, we are libertarians to the core. 
when it comes to our own personal religion and morality. We want anybody telling us we should or ought to do something. So now what do you do here? Because in people's minds, you've got this oppressive sense, duty, law, burden. So I want to show you that God's demand for love from you, gratitude from you, trust from you, and obedience from you, is a way to glorify Him that is not burdensome. It is not legalistic. It is not restricting and confining and uh, a hardship. Now, here's the way I'm going to show that to you. You know, I said last time that uh, we are supposed to be mirrors of God's glory, like the light coming through there this morning. You're supposed to be a polished mirror so that when your life is in the right angle, the right biblical angle, the glory of God shines out in a commendable and attractive way to the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. The other, the other analogy I used was the crystal or the prism. And I said each one of you is a uniquely shaped human crystal or prism so that when it is positioned in the light of God's glory, it refracts out many different colors and lights. And only you can display for this world some of the things that ought to be seen about God. Now... That's a duty to live that way, and that's not a burden to live that way. And I think I can show you with several illustrations. Um, If it is your duty to glorify God because he is beautiful and glorious, consider this illustration. If there's a beautiful painting in your house or in a... um, Museum somewhere, and you go to it, and it it is beautiful to you. How do you glorify that painting? Do you glorify that painting? Say, ooh, I got to go buy some paint now, and work on it a little bit. It needs a border, or it needs a little more orange, and you burden yourself with the need to improve it. That would be burdensome. But that's not the way you glorify a painting. That's an insult to a painting. The way you glorify a painting is by enjoying it, by delighting in it, and by speaking excitedly of it to people who are near you, your friends, inviting them to go to the museum and see it. And that's no burden, and every one of you knows that's no burden. If you love the painting, you will delight in it, and that glorifies the painting. Or let me use a more homely illustration that's more relevant to most of us. Suppose somebody makes an excellent meal for you, and it is not only tasty, it's beautiful on the table, and it is nutritious. It's the kind of thing you ought to eat as well as like to eat. How do you glorify the cook? Do you glorify the cook by... Putting on an apron and say, oh my, we got to work on this. Now, you go out in the kitchen and you add some more spices. Or you say, oh, we don't have any chips. I think of that because Noel always used to just, so I would say, aren't there any chips? And she, You're not supposed to have chips with this meal. <laughs> this, is, this is not a chips meal. Crips. I, I did not glorify her culinary arts. 
by asking for chips. The way to glorify a cook is to eat a lot of the food. And when you're done, to say things like, mmm, or ah. That's it. Now, is that a burden? If you've got an excellent meal in front of you, your duty, your law, is to glorify this meal and this cook. Is that a burden to do when the way to glorify the meal is to eat a lot of it and to say, mmm and ah, we call that worship at Bethlehem? Here's another illustration. Suppose it's your duty to glorify the strength of a new alloy, a metal, that has been created by somebody. And it is in a bridge that holds up a road across a chasm. Now, this is an old-fashioned illustration. How do you glorify the strength of that alloy? Do you glorify the strength of that alloy? Boy, so, ooh, we got to buy some two-by-fours and work up a good sweat, propping up the bridge before we go over. Well, that's a dishonor to the alloy. The way you glorify the alloy is by gathering all your family, all the little ones, all the old ones in your car, and with not one whiff of anxiety, drive right across the bridge, singing as you go. Is that a burden? It is not a burden to trust strength, if it is strength. And if you're called upon to glorify the strength of Almighty God, nobody ought to be able to persuade you that's a burden. It isn't a burden. It's freedom to trust strength. Here's another illustration. Suppose you are required by law, divine authority, to glorify generosity or to glorify grace or kindness in the heart of God. Or a friend, let's just say a good, rich friend that you have, who just happens to be so lavish in his generosity, he gives you things freely. Now, how do you glorify that person and his generosity? Not by trying to pay him back. Ooh, this is a mistake we make with God. We say, God has been so good to me now, what can I give him to pay him back? Do you know what that does to grace? It turns it into a business transaction. It rips the heart out of grace. How do you glorify grace? Primarily by allowing spontaneously lavish gratitude to well up in your heart. I mean, which of you, if a billionaire came up and handed you a check for a million dollars, would say, oh, no, I'm going to have to be thankful. Burden, heavy, load, law, duty. Nobody. You see what people have done with Christianity? It is no burden to glorify God's grace. One last illustration. Suppose it is your duty to glorify wisdom. Uh, let's use the illustration of a coach and a counselor. How do you glorify the wisdom of a very wise coach if you're on the team? Not by staying up late to try to 
figure out ways to solve problems he can't solve, but by running those drills gladly. No grumbling, no questioning. He knows what he's talking about. And when he sends the play into the quarterback, quarterback doesn't go... That's a slap in his face. But right on. I don't understand it. Maybe. But I'll run it. You are wise. And I glorify your wisdom by gladly running the play. Or if you have a a counselor and you're in therapy. And this counselor is wise and so helpful, insightful into where you came from and where you're heading. And that counselor says, now, next step in the process, you've got to go to so-and-so and say such-and-such. How do you glorify the counselor's wisdom at that point? Obedience. Pure and simple. Glad-hearted obedience. If you go grumbling to that person, my counselor said I have to do this, and I think it's a dumb idea, but I don't have any other place to go. You don't glorify the counselor that way. I mean, that's not the kind of obedience that glorifies the counselor. The kind of obedience that glorifies God's wisdom is glad-hearted obedience. And brothers and sisters, glad-hearted obedience is no burden. Gladness is no burden. Do, Do you get the point? Let me try to sum it up. All I'm saying is that behind point number two is this sentence. God is love. When he made you, he made you out of love. And when he demands things of you, be thankful for the billion dollar gift of grace. Walk in paths of righteousness. Delight in the glory of my beauty. Trust my Strength. That's no burden. That's love. Law is love. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is a summons to loss. And so I want to close with this question. Um, Have you come this morning on the run from God? Thinking... I'm not going to turn to the Christian God. I'm not going to bow before God because it means loss, loss, loss. I lose this, 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 this. Is there anybody here like that? If there is, I just pray and I hope that I have shown you just enough, a little tip of the iceberg of God's glory that will say, it is not loss. Whatever you give up to become a Christian because it happens to be sin will be repaid, the Bible says, 100-fold, both in this life and in the life to come. And I just beg of you, wherever you are in your flight from God or your quest for God, that you will turn to Him, recognize Him as a fountain of grace and glory and beauty and strength and yield to Him.